Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast. I'm Steve Baldwin. The winter holiday season is here, and unfortunately, so is the winter surge in COVID-19 cases. 2022 feels different from 2021, however, in that we are also seeing high rates of influenza, or more commonly known as the flu. Together with respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, this triple threat of viruses has the potential to cause a great deal of illness and strain our county's healthcare system. In fact, in the first week of December, about 25% of specimens countywide tested positive for the flu, and since then we've continued to see sharp increases in flu cases around the county. Today, we're joined by two experts from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health to help us understand more about the flu, flu symptoms, flu shots, and how best to keep ourselves and our families healthy during this winter flu season. I'm joined by Dr. Prabhu Gounder. Dr. Gounder is a physician and the medical director of the Respiratory Diseases Unit in Communicable Diseases Control with the LA County Department of Public Health. I'm also joined by Elizabeth Traub, who is the viral respiratory disease epidemiologist, also with the Department of Public Health. Dr. Gounder and Ms. Traub, welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast. And before we begin, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedules to join the podcast today. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Before we get started, may I call you by your first names? Yes, I am not a formal person, so that's perfect. (laughs) Same for me. (laughs) I appreciate that. Elizabeth and Prabhu, thank you so much. Can we just start with a very simple question that, you know, we we get all types of questions for the show. And one of the most common questions we've gotten about the flu is, can you just explain to us what is influenza? And I'll I'll start with Prabhu. Sure. So, Flu is, uh, is a contagious respiratory illness that's caused by influenza viruses. And these are viruses that can infect the nose, the throat, and the lungs. The flu viruses spread mainly by these tiny droplets that are generated when people cough or sneeze or talk. And then these droplets can land on other people's mouths and noses, and that's how they acquire the illness. You know, we emphasize hand washing because sometimes these viruses can also land on surfaces. And if you touch a contaminated surface and then touch your mouth or nose, you can get the virus that way as well. But once you get it, symptoms can really vary in severity. You know, some people can have, you know, mild or no symptoms at all. But the group that we're concerned about are those that progress to develop severe illness that uh, can sometimes require hospitalization and even lead to death. For people who want to know if they have flu, you know, some of the common symptoms tend to be sort of the sudden onset of fevers, chills, cough, sore throat, and body aches. But it's important to note, again, that not everyone will necessarily have all these symptoms and not necessarily have it in that order. Uh, So I think that's a quick summary of how I think about flu. We haven't talked about the flu in a while. It seems almost to have gone dormant since we've been talking about COVID-19 for so long. Is COVID-19 the same as the flu or how are they different? So COVID-19 is uh, different from the flu in that uh, they're caused by different viruses. So COVID-19 is caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus and flu is caused by influenza viruses. Uh, But they are similar in the sense that they're both transmitted by droplets. COVID-19, we think, is actually much more transmissible in the air. So even what we call aerosols. That's one difference is that COVID-19 is more transmissible. The other difference is that COVID-19 can be more severe because it's a, a newer 
virus. You know, it's not something that our immune system has seen before, so a greater proportion of the population can experience complications from it. Uh, but the symptoms can be similar, you know, especially for people with milder illness that doesn't require going to the hospital. It can present again with fever and sore throat and body aches. So you really can't tell the difference between COVID-19 and flu just based on symptoms alone, which is why if you have these symptoms, it's uh, important to get tested. And the other reason to get tested as well is because it sort of impacts to some extent what you can do. There are different treatments available for COVID-19 versus flu. And also just COVID-19 tends to be contagious for a longer period of time. So if you have COVID-19, you'd want to make sure that you stay home for 10 days to reduce your risk of spreading it to other people. So there, there's probably other differences, but those are some of the, the common ones. Mm. Elizabeth, we've heard about the flu season and it's it's usually the winter time when it gets cold people tend to get the flu how has the flu season evolved since the beginning of the covid pandemic right so um before the pandemic in the northern hemisphere we generally see influenza um, activity kind of start sometime late fall mid to late fall peak sometime over the winter months and kind of uh not we don't see a lot of flu during the summertime in the past few years before the pandemic, usually we'd see a peak in like December, January, sometimes as late as February. We usually see about two waves of flu. One is a flu A virus and one is a flu B virus, it's just different types of influenza viruses that cause a seasonal flu infection. And, um, you know, generally by the time summer's uh, here, it's done. When the, in 2019, 2020, we, um, we actually had a pretty bad flu season that year. And uh, it was a little bit unusual, but kind of mid-February is when we saw really, really high levels of influenza A circulating at the end of February. By the time, um, you know, mid-March came, the, the amount of flu that was circulating just plummeted. And it's really likely because of, you know, the safer at home orders and all of the different things that we, um, in, all the measures we put in place to stop the spread or slow the spread of COVID-19. And then for the following kind of two years almost, we really didn't see much flu or any other respiratory viruses with the exception of rhinoviruses, which cause like the common colds. There really wasn't much circulation. And it's because the same measures often that we use to help slow the spread of COVID work for other respiratory viruses. By the time, uh, you know, things kind of start opening up again, um, kind of this time last year, we start to see flu activities slowly come back to where we would sort of expect to see pre-pandemic, but then Omicron happened, Omicron emerged, and uh, all of the things that people did to voluntarily uh, keep their families safe or, you know, because of things that the county implemented, measures to to keep us safe, to slow the spread of, of COVID, um, kind of stopped the flu season again. By the time that Omicron wave passed, uh, we saw, you know, the return of some flu circulation over kind of the summer, the spring and summer. We had a really late really low peak of flu activity in March, or sorry, May of that year, um, kind of when schools unmasked, we saw a lot of circulation start, but it still was kind of an unusually low amount of flu for a particular flu season. But kind of coming out of this summer, we start our typical respiratory surveillance season, usually starts in October when we start keeping track, we kind of reset the clock for mm. um, respiratory virus surveillance. We're already we're seeing um, flu activity that was high enough to be called flu season, like the flu season had started in the beginning of October. And um, since then, we've just seen really, really unusually high rates of flu activity around um, the county and the country, really uh, mm. much higher than normal for this time of year. I have to think that 
mask wearing has a lot to do with prevention of the flu also. Just to make a left turn here a little bit. If you had to guess, I mean, does mask wearing have a lot to do with preventing the spread of the flu? Yeah, I I think so. Uh, Just given what we know about how these viruses spread, as we already mentioned, they're both respiratory viruses transmitted by droplets. That's the reason we recommend mask wearing for preventing spread of Mm COVID-19. And we know that has helped uh, decrease the spread of other viruses as well, RSV, influenza. And we know this because when the pandemic first started and we were asking people to take these measures like wearing a mask and also distancing and, uh, you know, washing hands more frequently, all these other preventive measures that we were recommending and people were adhering to, we saw all those other viruses almost disappear for a period Mm. of time. And so that correlation does indicate that uh, these things that we do to prevent uh, COVID-19 will also help protect people from these other viruses as well. And I would also add that shortly after we rolled back the requirement for universal masking in schools, maybe a week or two later, we had an outbreak of influenza at a mm. um, education in an education setting. There's actually um, a paper published in MMWR about it, which is CDC's journal. Uh, very, very soon, almost immediately after those mass mandates uh, in schools were rolled back. Wow. Is there a correlation between the COVID surges during the colder months and the severity of the flu season? In other words, when COVID increases, does the flu increase as well? So we don't think the uh, the two viruses uh, influence each other. But again, COVID-19 is a new virus and we're still learning a lot. Uh, and the reason I say that is, you know, with influenza, we have a lot of experience. We know that when people get flu, then there's a risk of secondary bacterial infections. But to date, there's no evidence that flu or COVID-19 directly influence each other. But what we are concerned about, though, is like we're experiencing now, when both viruses we know can cause severe illness and land people in the hospital, uh, and both viruses are surging at the same time, that it can add stress on the health system. That's really one of the things that we're most concerned about. You know, just even before COVID-19, the last severe flu season we had was uh, in 2017, 2018. And at that time, at the peak of that flu season, we're hearing about uh, emergency rooms getting backed up, uh, ambulances having increased offload times, these crews getting tied up so they can't go to the next ambulance run. Skilled nursing Mm -hmm. facilities uh, were getting shut down because of outbreaks and they couldn't take additional patients. So you could see how the entire health system was getting strained. And I think the concern is, even though we're in a better place now with COVID-19 than we were a year or two years ago, Combining a COVID-19 surge with an influenza surge and an RSV surge, I think could potentially place a lot of stress on the health system again. Dr. Gander, is it possible to have COVID and flu at the same time? Yes. And I think the risk of that depends on the level of activity of both, right? So if we're just experiencing COVID-19 surges with that influenza, then it would be unlikely. But again, in a time such as now, where we're seeing high levels of activity of both and increasing levels of activity of both, it's not uncommon for us to get reports of people with infections of both. Elizabeth, you you talked a little bit about the flu season and the calendar and what it looks like in L.A. County typically. We definitely sort of had an earlier start this year. Why do you think we had that earlier start? Why do we start seeing flu cases in October this year? So I think this is a question that a lot of people are asking right now, and there's not necessarily one answer, like an easy answer that we know for sure yet. But I think kind of the leading hypothesis is that 
there's just a lot more people in the community that are susceptible to the flu this year and all of these other respiratory viruses, especially, um, I think, among children who may have never actually been in contact with the flu virus before at this point. You know, typically in a given year, probably about the same proportion of the population will get influenza. It's probably somewhere around 8%, as low as 3%, up to 12% will get sick with the flu in a given flu season. Um, Over the past two years, those people have not gotten sick with the flu. So any sort of immunity that they might have had from a previous infection, they don't have anymore. So there's a lot more people who are just able to get the flu if they're exposed. On top of that, there's a a lower, there's some reports that the um, overall number of people who've gotten vaccinated for, um, gotten the flu vaccine this season is a lot lower than, or is lower than where we would want it to be. It's lower than it was in 2020. Um, Mm. So there's just a lot of people who are more able to get infected if they're exposed. There's a couple different reasons why viruses take off in a population, but in order for an infected person to get someone else sick, they have to come in contact with somebody who's susceptible. And there's a probability in each interaction that, you know, that susceptible person will get infected. You know, things like the climate and, you know, or the weather and and, and things like that typically kind of are thought of as a turning point for the season. It kind of makes that probability of someone getting sick in each interaction go up a little bit. But you still it still depends on how many people that sick person comes in contact with. So that the chance of a sick person now coming in contact with a susceptible person is a lot higher because there's just so many more susceptible people out there in the population than there normally is. So you can get, mm. you know, chains of transmission that maybe wouldn't necessarily be able to be sustained this time of year as early as we've seen it so far, just because there's so many more people who can get mm. or getting exposed and getting sick. Do you see the peaks that we're, we're seeing now or the, the increase, um, the high numbers that we're seeing now? Do you see this as a more of an indicator of a, a more severe flu season or do you think maybe in, it's an earlier peak? What's, what's your take on the high numbers we're seeing now? So I think there's a saying among people who do uh, flu surveillance that the only thing predictable about the flu is that it's unpredictable. Uh, you know, we, uh-huh. we know it usually starts sometime in the fall. We know it usually doesn't circulate in the summer, but we really don't know when it's going to peak or how high that peak is going to be or how long it's going to circulate for. I do think that because we have, again, more people who um are able, capable, susceptible to getting infected this year than we normally would, that we may see higher levels of flu for a while than we normally would in a typical flu season, just because there's so many more people who are able to get it. That said, like, it's very hard to know, you know, when the peak is until we've already passed it. I think I mentioned a little bit earlier that we sometimes see different waves of influenza viruses. So there'll be an influenza A virus and then an influenza B virus that's maybe a little lower and a little less um, intense a little later in the season. So right now, most of our flu cases are influenza A, H3N2, not particularly important what subtype it is at the moment, but there's three other versions of the virus that are um, possible to get as well. So we might see, you know, this might be a peak and then we might see, you know, COVID Mm. surge and another peak later of a different version of the flu. So it's really hard to know with uh, the information we have. Are the patients that are getting the flu this year, are they more sick? Are they about the same level of of suffering as there has been in years past? What does the severity of the strain for this year look like? Yeah, Maybe Dr. And, and just to add to uh, what Elizabeth was saying, even though we don't know what the flu season is going to look like, we already know that even if this was the peak of the flu season, that it already would be one of the, the most severe flu seasons we've had in the mm-hmm. last 10 years. Mm-hmm. 
one of the challenges with tracking flu for us is we don't count cases, so we have these proxy indicators. So if you look at the percent positive for flu, the ED visits for influenza-like illness, they're at a level that exceeds what we would see in uh, other flu seasons already, and we're still on the way up. But in terms of how flu is manifesting this year, it's hard to say in part because unlike COVID-19, influenza is not reportable. So individual cases of illness are not reportable. Mm-hmm. So we can't then track you know, what percentage of people with illness then get hospitalized and what percentage of them uh, die and what the characteristics look like. But to date, we don't have any indication that this is more severe at the individual level, but there is a wide range of severity. So in a typical flu season, you know, anywhere from 140,000 to 710,000 people can get hospitalized. And uh, and because it's not reportable, a lot of this is determined by modeling, and some of this is only known after the fact. So my sense is uh, that this will be a more severe season in terms of, you know, more people getting hospitalized, more people dying. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the specific manifestations, you know, whether it's pneumonia or something else, I don't think the way it manifests is different this year. Got it. Thank you. Do we see differences in how the flu affects children versus adults? To some extent, yeah. So in general, the people who are uh, at risk for complications from influenza tend to be children under the age of two, adults 65 years of age and older, and really anyone with uh, certain uh, underlying chronic medical conditions like uh, heart disease or chronic lung disease or a weakened immune system. But with children in general, it, it can present somewhat more atypically. You know, with the flu, as I mentioned, we typically think of it as a respiratory disease with fever, cough, and, you know, body aches, whereas young children might present uh, with more GI symptoms, you know, vomiting, Mm. diarrhea. So it can present somewhat atypically in children. But the majority of the burden of influenza is really in older adults, uh, in part because they tend to have more of the risk factors for disease. They tend to make up a great percentage of population. So it's really in the 65 and older population that we see, you know, the complications of hospitalizations and death that are concentrated. But that's not to say that influenza in children is not a problem because Mm -hmm. they are probably one of the primary drivers of community transmission. So children, and especially those children that have only mild illness. They go to school, they spread it to other children, they take it back home, they spread it to their grandparents. You know, so children, even if they're not experiencing the, the type of illness that lands them in the hospital, uh, they still do play an important role in what's driving uh, the community transmission of influenza that uh, we're seeing in LA County. Just to add on to that, I actually recently saw a statistic that CDC um, put out in an, an article that they published that says that, you know, although a lot of the burden of illness and deaths and hospitalizations and things like that is among the the elderly, young children or people under the age of 18, rather, are about twice as likely, have have twice as high a rate of symptomatic infection with influenza than people 65 years or older. So Mm. lots of, you know, they they really are a primary driver of, of spread in the community. Is the same true for RSV? We haven't talked about RSV yet. But is the same true? Does that hold true for RSV as well with with children or our younger population? Yeah, it, we, it, we think of uh, RSV as being very similar to influenza in the sense that uh, the same type of uh, people are at risk for increased complications. The children under mm-hmm. the age of two, adults above the age of 65 and anyone with uh, chronic underlying medical conditions. But RSV in young children in particular can be more severe than flu because it's associated with this condition called bronchiolitis, uh, which is inflammation of these small airways. 
And uh, because small children have really small airways to begin with, uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't take a lot for that to cause respiratory distress and for them to end up in the hospital. And so that's one of the things we're hearing about in the news now is how a lot of pediatric hospitals are getting stressed with uh, the, uh, the surge in RSV. And it's a combination of the fact that both the younger children tend to experience this complication of bronchiolitis and respiratory distress more than adults, combined with the fact that as a proportion of all hospital beds, we just have fewer pediatric beds than we do for adults. So it takes a smaller surge for that uh, pediatric health system to get uh, stressed. Got it. I was going to say, and RSV also, um, it's a virus that by a lot of uh, different accounts estimates, some somewhere between 95 and 98% of children under the age of two in times that aren't a historic pandemic will have been exposed to RSV by the time that they reach the age of two. So people can get reinfected with RSV over and over and over again, but typically the second, you know, the subsequent infections are less severe than the initial infection. So there's an entire group of children that have never been exposed to RSV when they normally would have been by this point of their life. Um, So a lot more kids are getting it and getting it for the first time this year than they would have um, in previous seasons. Hmm. And and again, part of the reason is that is the masking, I would think, right? Because we're sort of relaxing the masking mandates. And so they're more susceptible to getting it. Is that true? At least partially? Combination, yeah, it's partially, exactly. I think, uh, you know, the things that drive transmission is, uh, you know, it's multifactorial. Uh, Certainly not wearing masks uh, as rigorously or in a mandated way uh, is contributing as much as, you know, people are going back to school and maybe people are uh, less likely to stay home if they're sick and maybe they're going to more public spaces. And, you know, all these other changes in behavior are probably contributing to this increase in respiratory viruses. In addition to just the inherent virus characteristics itself, as Elizabeth mentioned, you know, if you haven't seen flu in a couple of years, and if you haven't seen RSV in a couple of years, then uh, your immune system uh, is not primed to respond to it. So that also makes you more susceptible. So probably a combination of things. Got it. That that makes a lot of sense. Okay, back to the flu really quick. When someone has the flu, at one point, should they seek medical attention rather than just trying to wait it out at home? When do you need to go see your doctor? I think there's two parts to this question. One is, you know, if you're the type of person that is at risk for complications, we talked about adults above the age of 65 and people with certain chronic underlying medical conditions, uh, you don't necessarily need to go to the hospital, but you probably should call your provider. And you don't even have to go to urgent care or go in person, but call your provider as soon as possible because there are antiviral medications that can help decrease your risk of getting hospitalized and decrease your risk of death. But these medications really only work well when taken early uh, in the course of illness, as early as possible, but definitely within 48 hours of symptom onset. So I think that's the first point, is uh, if you think you have uh, risk factors for severe illness, talk to your doctor. Uh, The other category, though, would be people with what we call severe progressive illness. And The main complication of influenza that uh, lands people in the hospital is a lung infection that we refer to as pneumonia. And the way that manifests is persistent fever with chest pain and shortness of breath. So if you have any of those symptoms, then call your doctor immediately or go to the hospital. In general, as just a precaution, we would say for anyone with uh, concerning symptoms or progressive and persistent symptoms that they should probably call the doctor as well. Okay. What about the flu vaccine? What is the optimal time 
to get the flu vaccine? That's a, a tricky question. I think what we would say is to get it as uh, early as possible because you don't want mm -hmm. to miss an opportunity to get vaccinated. I think trying to time the flu season is challenging. As uh, Liz had mentioned, every flu season is a little bit different and we don't exactly know when the flu season would start. In the past, we would have said you may want to consider waiting until October because the trade-off is that the flu vaccine, like the COVID vaccine, they do tend to wane over time. The protection wanes over time. So you don't you know, necessarily want to get it too early uh, before the flu season starts, but you also don't want to wait so long that uh, you know, you're potentially exposed uh, to influenza. Uh, so I think you, what we would advise people is, uh, in general, try to get it uh, whenever you have the opportunity to do so, so you don't miss that opportunity to get vaccinated. Got it. I've also read that there's different types of, of vaccines. So there's a there's a cell-based vaccine and a standard or an egg-based vaccine. Can you kind of tell us what's the difference between those? Is one better than the other? The science and technology underlying it is a little bit complicated, but at the core, the way vaccines work is you purify what we call the antigen. And the antigen is the part of the virus that your immune system sees and generates an immune response. So the next time you see the, the real virus, you've got antibodies to attached to that antigen and prevented from entering your cells and, and causing infection. And so all vaccine manufacturing technologies are just different ways of generating that uh, antigen. So for COVID vaccines, it's the mRNA-based technology. For flu, it's a, historically been this egg-based. So we use eggs to propagate the, the virus and then get the antigen that you can purify. And then there is the cell-based technologies, which is just a different way of uh, uh, generating that antigen. Putting all that aside, CDC doesn't have a preferential recommendation for one vaccine type over the other. I think the mm. important thing is to get vaccinated. And the one other important distinction might be for older adults and adults with weakened immune systems, there is a high-dose flu vaccine so that you can get a greater amount of that antigen to generate a stronger mm. immune response. So that's the one thing to consider for people who are, again, either older or have a weakened immune system. So every year the flu vaccine is updated right? So they prepare for the next flu that is coming along. My question is, how do they know what's coming along? How do they update the flu vaccine every year? So there's a group of people who kind of globally who meet, who look over surveillance data from um, the opposite hemisphere and from the past season, and they try to make an educated guess essentially, about what they think is going to be circulating and kind of incorporating into that. They also look at, you know, what's been circulating recently. Maybe if um, there's two different strains of one particular type of virus that have been circulating um, and one's kind of newer and the other one's kind of older, they might go with the newer one because people would have been exposed to the older one before. Mm. And, uh, you know, they look at that. They look at the data from the opposite hemisphere. So this group um, for the northern hemisphere I think that they tend to meet in February of the year before the vaccine is updated because they have to have that um, manufacturing process turns around in like six months. And then we try to get the, you know, the vaccine tries to, they try to push the vaccine out onto the market by, I think, July or August, usually it's August mm -hmm. or September. You know, they, they take a look at all this data and then they select one version of, you know, the two influenza A viruses and the two influenza V B viruses that are included in these vaccine formulations to, to go out. And sometimes it's not a match. And so in those years, the vaccine doesn't typically work as well. In some years, it's a very good match. 
this season, um, at least so far, based on the genetic information and the antigenic information that has been put out by CDC for the viruses that are circulating, it does seem like the they made a good choice and the vaccine is a good match mm. for what's circulating. That's great. And why do they call it a vaccine and not a booster? Is there a reason for that or do you happen to know? <laughs> what's the difference? Just, yeah, I, I guess, yeah. you know, some of it might be semantics. Uh, but mm. if I had to speculate, it would be just the way we think about these two different viruses. You know, flu changes so much season to season that uh, we think of it essentially has a, a new disease every season, which is why it becomes hard to predict, mm-hmm, you know, what the mm-hmm. severity is going to be, when it's going to you know, come on, how long it's going to last. And because we think of it as a new virus, then you need a new vaccine because your immune system hasn't seen this before. So you're getting vaccinated. You are getting immunity to this new virus. Whereas uh, COVID-19, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2, these are coronaviruses. Uh, there are other coronaviruses in the human population. It doesn't change as much. Uh, but what happens, though, is that your immunity to it wanes uh, over time. And so that's why you keep getting the common cold over and over again. You know, every three to five years, you'll probably get one of those other coronaviruses. But in the setting of the current public health emergency, we really want to make sure that people are protected against uh, COVID-19. Even, you know, symptomatic illness can be, from a public health perspective, problematic. You know, people aren't able to go to work. People have to isolate. Uh, and, and still, we have a lot, large number of people that are still getting hospitalized and dying from COVID-19. Yeah. And so with COVID, COVID-19, that waning in immunity is more problematic than for some of the other viruses. And so we need to boost the immune system so you can get back to the optimal level of protection that you would have had with that first vaccine. And so I think that's why we keep seeing subsequent, uh, you know, recommendations for uh, a booster dose because of the waning and also some changes to the vaccine as the virus changes and we have a better match uh, to the the virus that's circulating. Got it. Does the flu vaccine protect uh, or offer any protection against other viruses or support protection around COVID-19? At all? No. So, you know, mm. the influenza virus, if, if we think back to how these vaccines are generated, it's based on the antigen. The antigen is specific to that virus. The immune system then uh, generates a response to that specific vaccine. But there is evidence that getting influenza vaccine does protect you indirectly from other illnesses. Mm. Every year, we see many times more uh, what we call influenza associated hospitalizations and deaths. So these are hospitalizations and deaths that are not directly due to influenza in terms of pneumonia. But we know, for example, if you have influenza, you have an increased risk of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And so that's why every year we see the seasonal increase in hospitalizations and deaths from other cardiopulmonary causes. So getting the flu shot not only protects you from flu, but also from some of these uh, secondary complications of uh, other chronic uh, underlying medical conditions. And is it safe to get the flu vaccine and a COVID vaccine or a booster at the same time? Like, can you go in and get them literally at the same time when you go to see your pharmacist or your physician? Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. uh, early on, uh, there might have been a recommendation to space it only because we didn't know much about the COVID-19 vaccines. And if someone, say, had uh, fever or body aches after that, it's hard to separate out, you know, what vaccine caused it. That was early in the pandemic. But for at least a couple of years now, We've recommended getting it at the same time, uh, if possible. And children as well? Yeah, and for children as well. Okay, that's great. 
Okay, just a couple of more questions. Some people still get the flu after getting a flu vaccine. Do you recommend the flu shot or a flu vaccine for everyone still, even though it's not 100% preventative? Yeah. When we think about these infectious diseases like COVID-19 and for influenza, we talk about a layered approach. I don't think there's a single intervention that's going to protect 100% of people. And a vaccine is a very effective tool. And even if, say, you get the flu vaccine and then you get influenza, there's a good chance that your your illness would be much less severe. Your symptoms will be less severe than if you didn't get vaccinated. You're less likely to get hospitalized. You're less likely to die. So there's many reasons to get the flu vaccine, even if it doesn't protect you 100%. But because it doesn't protect you 100%, that's why it's also important to take these additional steps, You know, especially now when we know flu activity is high. Wear a mask if you're in crowded indoor uh, public spaces. Uh, stay away from sick people. You know, these common sense everyday measures that people can take to uh, further reduce the risk of getting sick. Got it. All right. Last flu vaccine question, I promise. Um, well, I can't promise, but I think this is the last one. Who is eligible for the flu vaccine? Who can get it? That's question part one. And part two, where can they get it? Everyone can get it. I mean, the only contraindication uh, really is. Uh, you know, people have an allergy to a component of the flu vaccine, but anyone above the six months of age, they can get it. The allergy I'm talking about is very rare. You know, and there's some people with a certain rare neurologic conditions that have been linked to getting the flu vaccine. But both these occur so exceedingly rare that uh, we would, practically speaking, say everyone six months of age and older should get the flu vaccine every year. Okay. And that's great. And then where can people go to get vaccinated? If you have insurance, then you could go to your primary care provider. Okay. Uh, you could go to any pharmacy that accepts your insurance. And for people without insurance, uh, they can come to our public health clinics. So there are several options out there for people to get uh, vaccinated. That's great. I imagine we have some resources online that people can go to if they're looking for uh, information or additional information. Is there a website or something we can point folks to? Yeah, LA County Public Health does have several websites. Uh, you know, there's a, a website that our program, the Acute Communicable Disease Control Program, hosts where we post uh, what we call surveillance data. So if you want information on influenza activity, that's a good place to look. Uh, our Vaccine Preventable Diseases Program has uh, you know, lots of information about uh, all vaccines, not just flu vaccine, including where you can go to get uh, vaccines. Our uh, media page also has additional uh, resources as well. And uh, yeah, so we'll just refer people to our LA County uh, Department of Public Health webpage for that. That's perfect. And we will include live links to those resources in the notes section for this podcast. Just scroll to the notes section and you can live link right there from your podcast player. Dr. Prabhu Gounder and Elizabeth Traub, both with the Department of Public Health. Thank you so much for your time today. So much appreciate having you on the show. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov 
and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.